folks. I'm Katie. I'm Vinny. This is Learn Real Good. Yes. We are here to learn... Real. Good. Nailed it. <laughs> we have a guest today. Yeah. I'm so excited. Are I'm, you excited to I'm interview excited. a guest? Yeah. I love I meeting like, people. I feel like Oprah right now. I mean, we wish we were Oprah. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? Yeah, they it's should. A big, it's a big day. Um, what's, what's new with you, Vin? Before we even get to our facts, just tell our listeners, you know, what's new in Vinny's world? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not used to recording on such nice microphones. Uh, you sound great. I think I sound good. It's quite delightful. It's funny how it makes you change how you talk when you immediately have that feedback. Of hearing your own yes. voice in your ears. Yeah. Normally you don't have that. But it's impossible not to have it affect you. Like it reminds me of college radio. Back in the college radio. Just like I could drop that. When I did college radio, you know, when you hear your own voice, like it's hard to not, hard to sound natural. Yeah. You just got to do your best to block out that and just make sure that you're talking like your normal self. Yeah. What is my normal self? Am I normally myself? Is this my normal self? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Deep thoughts. <laughs> What's your science fact, Katie? Oh my gosh. So... So this is our first segment on Learn Real Good. What we're going to do is me and Vinny are going to come at you with some new science facts that we have just learned. And we haven't talked ahead of time. No, I don't know what your science fact is going to be, Katie. I'm so excited. So I had to look it up. It wasn't something I came across naturally. And I went on New Scientist, you know, nice light pop sigh information. And there was this article that came out recently on bat echolocation. Oh, Yes. What's new in bat worlds? Okay, so there's this new study conducted at, through Tel Aviv University um, where scientists want to explore, do bats innately know how to echolocate? Well, like, that's like instinctive? Yeah, because like birds need to learn their songbook, right? They're not born knowing Is any songs. Is that true? I don't yes. know about either. Yes, and throughout their life, they can learn new songs, right? Whoa. Brain size is correlated with song repertoire. Hmm. So they were like, whoa, what about bats? So what they did was they took adult bats. Did they say it like that? Yes, whoa, I was there. what about bats? <laughs> they took adult bats and they put them in a chamber that had like helium pumped in. So it was going to be lighter than regular air to see how they would echolocate. And they kept missing their targets when whoa. they would try to like land somewhere, which I want to see the video. <laughs> it sounds adorable and sad. Like drunk bats, basically. Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, those are grown-up bats. Maybe it's too old dogs can't learn new tricks. Oh, interesting. So they took baby bats. This sounds cruel. And raised them <laughs> in a chamber of helium. What? Really? Yeah. And they still kept missing. So it's innate. It's innate. That's what they're thinking. But this is sort of new Hot news. new. Hot new. Hot bat news. Bats don't do well in helium. <laughs> So if the world, if the atmosphere is replaced by pure helium, the bats are screwed. But we're running out of helium, yeah. aren't we? Well, the, don't the, do the bats know this no, good news? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have nothing to fear. All of our helium is being used in bat studies, apparently. Are the bats behind that? <laughs> Maybe. It's a self, uh, self-preservation mechanism. Yes. They've been holding so many kids' birthday parties. <laughs> That's adorable. My mental images are amazing. All these bats with like costumes and people. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. cute. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's my fact. That's a great fact. It's not bad, right? Yeah. I was excited to hear that. You want to hear my fact? I am dying <laughs> to hear your fact. All right. This episode's Vinny fact is 
there uh, is evidence uh, and growing evidence that there is a ninth planet. Now, normally you think there are eight planets because we don't count Pluto anymore. That's there's uh, ends at Neptune. Speak for yourself. Well, I I will speak for myself <laughs> and the Astronomy Union, uh, <laughs> which conventionally agrees there are only eight planets. Pluto not being a planet anymore. However, mm, well, let me guess. Yes. Okay. What the ne- new planet is. Okay. Is it a moon? Someone else's moon that's being like kicked up a notch to planet? No. Damn it. No. Uh, to be counted as a planet, the sun has to be one of the focal points of the orbit. Okay. You're just going to sigh at all my science well, facts? No, just, no, it's the sun. <laughs> the sun has to make everything about them. <laughs> yeah, that's how planets work. They think they're like the center of the galaxy yeah. or something. The galaxy, mm? not the solar system. That's what I meant. <laughs> I'm the biologist. I don't need to know that's okay. basic children's physics. <laughs> yeah, planetary okay, physics. Okay, what's the new planet? So it, no one hasn't spotted it yet. It hasn't been directly detected. But um, so they're, you know, comets, they come from very far away, get close to the sun, then go back out. They have very long orbits. So, you know, don't see one for like, you know, Halley's Comet is every 72 years. Um, so there are other long range bodies that are, have, been, have been spotted. And they come close to the sun, but not as close as like a comet. So it doesn't get all bright and shiny. So they're hard to spot. And they're just basically rocks of ice and rock. And there's a bunch of them that they found that all have this like specific orbit that is like weirdly all, they're all kind of the same, like at a specific angle and they're grouped together. And there's, it's not random at all. It's like a group of like 13, um, astron- uh, Oort cloud bodies or trans-Neptunian orbit bodies that uh, all come in and orbit in this specific way. And the only way they would all be like that is if there's another planet that's kicking them to that orbit. Whoa, there's some invisible planet that's kicking other, comets at us? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's knocking them into a specific other orbit. It's basically clearing a path. I'm going to ask a question for our audience who's less familiar with the solar system and space yeah, sure. than I. How can we not see a planet well, if it's that close? this is great. Well, this is the problem. It's not that close. The How can o- it be in our solar system if it's not that close? Well, it's estimated to be 500. To- the distance from Earth to the sun is one astronom- astronomical unit, AU. This is supposed to be 500 astronomical units away. It's very, very far away. But it's supposed to be five times the size of the Earth, or at least the mass of the Earth. How is it part of our solar system if that's Because it orbits away? around the sun. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. So you can be on the other side of the universe. Yes. And once over the course of time, yes. make one trip. Correct. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So anything in our solar system is anything that orbits the sun. And so there's a planet... That may not be, and it's very far away, so it doesn't get a lot of sunlight. And then it has, that sunlight has to come all the way back to Earth to be reflected off the sun. So it's very hard to see. There might be a whole other planet, like a legit planet. Yeah, I don't know. I think another person. planet is kind of cool. Yeah, to update all our dioramas. Yeah. What do you call those? Mobiles. Mobiles? Mobiles? <laughs> Mobiles. Potato? Tomato. Okay. Okay, well, those are great facts. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Thank you. That was very fun. Yeah, I enjoyed your bat fact. <laughs> bat facts. <laughs> Each week, a new bat fact. Well, that's enough of us Yeah, that's sharing plenty. Facts. That's more than enough of us. I cannot wait for our interview with our next guest. Yeah. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. Yes. So I have the pleasure of introducing Kevin Guo. 
He is a PhD candidate at the Montreal Clinical Research Institute in the lab of Dr. Matthew Farron. He's investigating the possible role of vitamin K, everyone's favorite vitamin, in the prevention of diabetes. Growing up, Kevin had wanted to be either a chef, filmmaker, or scientist. Thus far, he's cooked up countless biochemical protocols and created many movies starring living cells under a microscope. With enough hard work and determination, he hopes to one day become a scientist too. Please join me in welcoming Kevin. Hello, Hi, Kevin. Kevin. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a thrill to have you on our podcast. Am I allowed to um, ask a question about the science facts? Yes. We <laughs> please, were... please do. Yeah, we love questions. <laughs> Interview us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just I was thinking about what Katie said about how the sun thinks it's the center of the galaxy. But from a relativistic point of view, if we set the sun as like the focal point, isn't the galaxy technically pinwheeling around it instead Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, they're orbiting around each other, man. Is that true, Vinny? Yeah. Whoa. So the sun can be the center of the galaxy given the correct reference. Yeah, point. absolutely. I mean, that's I mean, that's why it looks like the sun goes around the earth from the earth's perspective, the sun goes around us. Did we just take down physics, guys? It's over. <laughs> Shut her down. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> Problem solved. Sorry, ninth planet. <laughs> so, Kevin, Tell us about vitamin K. Yeah. What's the deal with what, vitamin K? What is vitamin K? <laughs> yes. Vitamin K. Uh, the first thing I think everybody tends to notice about vitamin K is the fact that it doesn't follow the alphabet. Right? You know, if you count right. vitamin A, B, C, D, E, there's no vitamin F. Uh, yeah. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. But, uh, Good yeah, anyway, so there's a there's a couple letters in between before we reach K. And the reason <laughs> <laughs> those will remain unnamed <laughs> to protect <laughs> their identity. I uh oh man, yeah. Uh, it's a good thing I didn't go into English or something. But anyways, uh the reason why it's called vitamin K is actually because of the German word for coagulation. It's spelt with a K. And so the guy who discovered it, he discovered it in chickens, actually. And he um, he named it vitamin coagulation in like the sort of German spelling, wow. which is why it's called vitamin K. And I actually think it's part of the reason why um, this vitamin has been pigeonholed into just like clotting for so long. That's really interesting. So the other vitamins weren't named for their function, right? They were just named in order. Why? That's interesting. Well, hang, hang on. There's like 42 B vitamins, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. There's like A, B, B, another B, B this, B. There's like a zillion B vitamins. And I'm what? pretty sure there's even like skipped numbers in yeah. B. Like <laughs> yeah, B16. I don't remember a B15. You vitamin scientists need to get your <laughs> shit together. That's what we're here to yeah. say. Hey, at least we're not like immunologists, which name everything just IL number. That's impossible <laughs> to remember. Well, I know at least with the B vitamins, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, but they all have a related function in metabolism. I think that's why they're all B. They oh. all so they're sort of grouped by the they functionality. Let, they let us be. But I don't know the number. What's the deal with the number? Well, a lot of times the you're right, basically, with how vitamin B tends to be grouped by um, their function as well. But uh, just in general, a lot of times I think this is this is more just my personal opinion. But when 
any sort of macromolecule or protein ends up being named for its function, you tend to result in ridiculous situations like mm. this. There are so many proteins out there uh, that actually their name has nothing to do with their function, right? Like a, a really famous example of this, I think is, well, what's that protein called again? I think it, it, it's target of, it's the symbol is mTOR and it stands for target of rapamycin. And rapamycin is this sort of substance that's found in fungi. And they found essentially that something weird happened with this protein when they threw it on. But it turned out that it was a completely incorrect conclusion. You know, like this rapamycin <laughs> does nothing to mTOR. But to this day, it's called a target of rapamycin oh when it isn't actually. <laughs> so now this arbitrary lettering system for vitamins sounds a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> It does. At least, you know, if you're not like me and you know your alphabet, you can know. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. So so what brought you to vitamin K? So you want the real story or the more scientific sounding story? <laughs> Give us the real deal. <laughs> Give us the real deal. Yeah. All right. All right. So at the end of the day, a lot of times when you're in a given field, it, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this as well, um, that there are some people who will research something because they're really interested in this specific topic, and other people who will research something just because um, it kind of overlaps with their technical expertise. Like maybe they've had some experience purifying proteins or uh, they have some experience classifying animals or something like that. Or they happen to know the right type of programming that is required in like a certain lab that they want to do a certain thing. So for myself, it wasn't so much that I had a specific interest in vitamin K as I knew what kind of lab that I wanted to go into. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go into a lab that was relatively young um, because, you know, once you join an old tenured professor, sometimes nothing ever happens uh, mm. because they sort of <laughs> lose that motivation. Um, I wanted to join a relatively small group because I didn't want to, you know, I know some uh, many grad students who will join these big famous mm. labs and, you know, maybe their project is just going a little slower than everybody else's and they just kind of get pushed to the wayside. I didn't want that to happen either. And more than that, I also uh, wanted to find a supervisor that I felt could kind of, um, that our strengths and weaknesses complemented. Mm -hmm. So for myself, I am a pretty kind of crazy, I'll run into your office and tell you some like weird idea that I have kind of person, but I am not organized at all, you know, by nature. So uh, when I was interviewing with this guy, he had, or, or Dr. Ferrand, he had this uh, really beautiful PowerPoint of, you know, the things that he had discovered, how it linked into what, where he wanted to go and the sort of technical expertise mm. that both of us could bring to the project. And I really liked that. The other thing is that he, um, he walks around with this uh, blue hoodie with a big eagle, like a First Nations print <laughs> eagle on it. Wow. And he's got, um, he, he's not really, really old. I believe he's in his uh, 40s, but he has like gray hair and shocking blue eyes. And he just looks like a wizard. <laughs> I was like, if anybody secretly is actually teaching lightning magic and is just waiting for like a worthy person, it's, it's this guy, yeah. So be honest, Kevin, we're all friends here. Did you join this lab thinking you'd be a wizard? I joined this lab knowing I'd be a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> I, nice. am, 
I am pleased because I mean, it's true, right? Because a lot of what we do in science is really modern day wizardry. Like, I don't know half of what I'm half the machines that I do, like, have you ever worked with a uh, fluorescence activated cell sorter before? That stuff is crazy. Nobody knows how it <laughs> no. actually works. Like, Do we look like the kind of people that would work with a fluorescence activated cell sorter? If, if I just want to explain it for, for just a second, it's <laughs> essentially you take a tube of cells and based on As the, one often does. Yes, sure. but based on the proteins that are on its surface, you essentially take antibodies. Everybody knows antibodies now because of COVID, I suppose. But right. there are antibodies that are specific for your protein um, that have this little glowing molecule on it. It fluoresces and they conjugate it via kind of like a chemical reaction. So you can actually take a mix of cells. You have no idea what's in there. And you throw in, you know, an antibody for protein A, antibody for protein B, C, D. And then you run it through this crazy machine that somehow by recognizing the color of the fluorescence oh. tag gives it a certain magnetic charge. It then flies mm. between these magnetic plates, which deflect it just yep. enough that it lands in like specific tubes based on its tag. And I have no idea how it works. I it's use amazing. the machine all the time, but it's just magic. Yeah. That is amazing. And so yeah. you just you just pop, you just load up some cells, leave, and you come back, and it's all sorted for you. Exactly. You're like, thank you, robot. Would this work on like a Scrabble tile bag? <laughs> I've got some socks. I'd like to throw at that <laughs> machine. <laughs> I think they already fluoresce if you ask me. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great way to. Yeah, I mean, though, all of those considerations for when you're choosing a lab to go oh. to when you're choosing where to do grad school there's so many factors that go into it and and the ones you listed are definitely near the top yeah for grad school i mean you gotta you gotta think about how you gel with your supervisor i think that's very very wise of you kevin to have thought that far ahead i think a lot of people make that error of not thinking about that relationship and how mm -hmm. that's going to go and focusing too much on the school or the, or the prestige how the or the, the name of the lab sometimes yeah yeah but that's that's huge and that's hard to know about yourself when you're a younger grad student. Like what? It definitely helps to do a master's first, mm. actually. I yes. think a lot of, yeah, a lot of people, they think they can save time, just mm. fast track, but you really don't have the experience to know what is suitable, what is, where a lab where you can both contribute the most and get gained the most from before you kind of have that experience. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much pressure nowadays to rush to to jump ahead, eh? To to skip the masters and level up into a PhD. Mm -hmm. And I I get it from an institute perspective, right? Churn out more PhDs, but from a student perspective, I don't know that it's that advantageous. I blame it on TV and <laughs> movies. No, really, because I feel especially anime. It's terrible. These like twelve year olds are making these crazy scientific discoveries all the time, you know. <laughs> and I think it does put pressure on people because. They, you know, you watch a movie and the, the scientist who already has a Nobel Prize is like 30 years old, you know, right. it, it, that's just not realistic, right? Are there really that many animes with scientist characters? You'd be surprised. There's quite a few. Because <laughs> that's something I feel, I don't watch anime, but I feel like in the pop culture I consume, there isn't nearly enough scientists there's, being displayed. There's displayed. so much anime being generated. <laughs> there's probably an anime with a bat in helium. <laughs> I'm 90% sure. We are making that. <laughs> Healing bats There's coming definitely to you. an anime with an, a secret planet wandering the solar system. For, I guarantee that one. But yeah, I, I mean, there is generally a, a huge amount of pressure on people to like, I guess it's a bit 
universal like the faster you complete these so-called milestones the more ahead of the quote-unquote game you are but if you come out because you rushed ahead and you have less publications which i feel is almost inevitable that's really the currency that people care about no one's going to look and say oh masters in one year you star right they're going to look at the number of papers and quality of papers and that's a huge way that you're evaluated yeah absolutely and but even the way that uh labs put out paper papers i think um because there are there's generally two philosophies for putting out papers right you can either try to churn things out fast these sort of small fast studies um pad your cv get going quickly or you can be one of those people who want to make like three first co-authors and uh pull a massive amount of data together make a huge paper for someone who doesn't know what co-authors mean and first co-author and yeah what i mean the average listener might not know what does that mean if you're the first co-author why why is that important it it basically all gets down to how credit is divided and as katie mentioned about what sort of matters to us academics it's a any grad student can tell you that we're not paid very much we we really we're, we're paid kind of below minimum wage for the number of hours we work usually but our currency is really these publications right sort of getting our name out there feeling like we've contributed to the field being recognized for the contributions that we do and a big way that that's done is the order of authorship on a paper mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times when you see these uh the author list it might look arbitrary but generally how it goes is that the people who directly worked on the project um, or let's talk about the professor first actually the supervising professor's name will usually always be the last one and the person who isn't the supervisor and contributed the most to the paper will usually be the first author and the general way that it's done is that whoever contributes the second most will be second so on and so forth there's a, a little bit more nuanced uh, mm-hmm. than that because sometimes uh, supervisors can work together, in which case uh, both of them will be sort of towards the end. And then whoever is like most last is actually the biggest. So if you're a supervisor, <laughs> you want to be most last. If you're a grad student, you want to be most first. Yeah. It's an inverse bell curve. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, certainly. So vitamin K, um, I've really in the last couple years come to appreciate how fascinating it is because like I said, mentioned previously, um, everybody knows it as this vitamin that uh, is involved in the coagulation process. And how it does that is basically um, it is needed for the activity of this enzyme. So an enzyme is essentially a protein that has this um, an active function. It spends energy and does things. For example, um, the uh, all the proteins in your body that essentially create energy for you and allow you to move and whatnot, those are considered enzymes, but they will pull on scaffolding. You know, like for example, muscle, you have the fibers mm-hmm. and all the little proteins that pull on those, those are considered enzymes too. Nice. So vitamin K, it's essential for this one enzyme that will essentially make uh, very specific proteins more acidic. And what that essentially means is that it'll have this extra negative charge on it. Now, um, that's that's all kind of a jargony, but when you when you sort of look at the functions of these proteins in general, they always have to do, or they often have to do rather, with the binding of calcium. 
So a lot of people, when they think about calcium inside the body, they think about bones, right? They yeah. think about skeletons. Definitely thinking about sk spooky skeletons and drinking <laughs> and drinking milk. Skeletons that drink milk. Well, actually, the the sort of role in the structure of your skeleton is the secondary role of calcium. Its more important role is actually in signaling, which oh. is something, yeah, basically the only way your muscles can contract is because calcium enters them, right? The only way your neurons fire Whoa. is because calcium enters them. That's doing a lot of work in there. Exactly. It actually is really, really important. And, and the really the primary role of calcium, it's part of the reason why actually when you don't have enough calcium, your bones are the first to go because in a sense, your bones serve as this reservoir sure, of calcium. Yeah. yeah, because it's so important. And so uh, vitamin K does this very specific modification. It's called carboxylation. And it is essentially able to make these proteins more negatively charged. And for a lot of these really classical proteins that are carboxylated, um, it allows them to be able to fold properly and bind mm. calcium. And that's kind of part of, a, part of the whole package here. Sounds important. And how does that connect to coagulating? Sorry, was that about what you were about to say? Actually, I sort of want to move a little bit away from coagulating. Yeah, because yeah we've got <laughs> old hat only yeah. for Germans. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But but again, I think it's 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 part of um, why the nomenclature is part of, I think, why it got pigeonholed. But in fact, our lab is beginning to discover that there might be a bunch of other proteins that have nothing to do with coagulation whatsoever mm -hmm. that are also carboxylated. And um, obviously when you look at biology, you want to be approaching from several different angles. Like, you know, the, I told you a little bit about the chemistry, mm -hmm. but also from the clinical aspect, we know that vitamin K actually, um, seems to protect against the development of type two diabetes. Wow. So yeah, there was this, uh, these clinical studies were essentially, uh, patients who were at risk, you know, they had things like hypertension, obesity, things like this. They were given vitamin K and that cohort was found to um, have a 50% reduced risk of developing uh, type two diabetes. Oh. So it's not uh, like, yeah. usually when you think about these clinical studies, often, you know, even effects of 10%, 5% are course. pretty good. But so that one, it found like a 50%, you know? So, uh, which is quite strange because we, um, there, there was basically not no real explanation for why a coagulation uh, right. vitamin was doing all of this. It's probably doing something else. Exactly. And so one thing that our lab did was we took mice and we sort of ground up various organs from the mouse. I know. Sorry, <laughs> mice. <laughs> Sorry, mice. mice. But we were trying to basically look at, so you know how a vitamin K is used by that enzyme right? So we were trying to look for where that enzyme was mm. in the body and where it most is, is in the liver, which is not surprising because that's where all the clotting uh, factors are mm. made. Okay. But the place, the place where it was second most abundant is pancreas. actually the pancreas. Exactly. The Nailed pancreas. it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the diabetes it. connection. That's the diabetes connection. And so um, specifically the pancreatic islets. So to sort of describe that a little bit, your pancreas is this little organ that's sort of right behind your stomach and it produces both, um, these digestive juices that allow you to basically, uh, digest your food. So that's a nice. uh, part of, I the need that. 
<laughs> yes, it's very important. But equally as important is the these little clusters inside of the pancreas. They literally look like these little balls, and they're called the islets of Langerhans. And these oh. will produce. You could take a vacation there. I was gonna say that sounds wizardly. That does sound wizardly. <laughs> a wizard would live on the islets of Langerhans. <laughs> You know, they actually do kind of look like that when you when you uh, section the pancreas and look at them under the microscope. They look like almost these swirling balls because nice. they're they're like stained purplish. Whoa. But anyways, these will produce um, a number of hormones that essentially signal to your body the various nutrient states. And the most important one for diabetes is the beta cells, which will produce insulin. Um, insulin, mm. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it it basically signals uh that there's sugar in the blood and when you have a failure of these things number one it's quite dangerous because if you have too much uh sugar in your blood it'll become too thick cause clots uh like it's slurpee. very dangerous exactly and the other bad thing about it is that it will make it so that your liver and your fats and whatnot will be unable to take up that sugar and convert it into long-term stores so diabetic people um, not only have to worry a lot about um, having too much sugar in their blood, they also constantly have to be worried about not having enough sugar because they don't have those backup stores. So basically we said about, uh, it was weird to us because no carboxylated protein other than the enzyme itself actually, uh, what could sort of explain the effect that we, we saw. So um, we did this crazy method called uh, mass spectroscopy, where we nice. purify or if as a wizard would call it throwing a piano down a staircase, listening to it. the tinkles and finding the notes. <laughs> That's what a wizard would do. He had me at tinkles. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, though, because you take all these proteins in the cell, you smash them, you know, like uh, you smash them together. You have all these uh, electrons and spikes flying off of it. And basically a rather complex algorithm will be able to interpret what proteins are in there. And really the best example, and I think I saw it on TV before, actually it was used to describe the, the Hadron Collider. Right. Uh, and they, the guy was saying, it's like trying to find all the notes on a piano by throwing it down the stairs and hearing all the tinkles. That, wow. that is pretty, it's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so using this, we basically identified some uh, new proteins, completely new proteins that... Uh, hot new proteins. Exactly, hot new proteins. We call them novel. You know, that's the, that's right. the sort of oh, science right, right. term. New we... is not good. Novel is better. <laughs> that's right. These novel gamma carboxylated proteins. So our current work is basically in characterizing all of these proteins and finding out what the heck they're doing because they're not clotting proteins. You know, they're kind of something Whoa. completely. So we got a whole bunch of mysterious proteins. That's right. I love it. Have you named any proteins after yourself? Is that a dream? See, I tried to <laughs> I, I think about, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've definitely thought about it. Or name it some like acronym that sounds really silly once you, <laughs> you know, these backronyms. But right, right. Unfortunately, a lot of these proteins, they already have established mm -hmm. gene names. So we decided to just uh... go. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I have to say, though, I think that part of the reason why proteins have less ridiculous names nowadays is because the field is less male dominated. Nice. Good job. Because back in man. the 80s and 70s, you were having like sonic hedgehog protein, you know, the <laughs> the uh, yeah, I, I can't man. swear on the podcast. Sure. Can I? <laughs> sure. Yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah. For there's a there's an enzyme where the uh, 
where the acronym spells out motherfucker, basically. <laughs> I mean, you're going to live to regret that. Yeah, that's that's like getting a tattoo of of like your favorite cereal. <laughs> I mean, again, imagine a time where the lab was just filled with 20-something men. <laughs> These things will happen. It's all they had. It's all they had. <laughs> So at this point, I guess your you, you your lab doesn't have any big clues as to what the relationship is. It's still a bit of a mystery between vitamin K and diabetes. We think calcium. So okay. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I I actually ran a recent experiment where I took one of these kind of novel gamma carboxylated proteins. And I ran an experiment where I took radioactive calcium. Because the mm. thing is. It's hard to see these really mm -hmm. small things, right? You need to come right. up with weird tricks to do it. So basically I just took like the protein that um, was either grown without vitamin K. So it doesn't have this carboxylation or I took the protein that we grew it with vitamin K. So it has the modification mm -hmm. that requires vitamin K on it. And you put it on this membrane and then you just pour radioactive calcium on it. You wash it off. Wow. And based on the amount of radioactive calcium that's still stuck to the protein, you know how much calcium mm. it binds. And so far I've seen that like, you know, the uh, at least the way it looks, the um, the vitamin K modified carboxylated protein, it binds like double the amount of calcium Whoa. that the other one does. So there's Very definitely nice. probably something there. It, it It's also a lot of what I'm currently doing right now is these microscopy experiments where we're taking cells, culturing them with or without vitamin K, and then essentially putting in a drug that causes the calcium to rush out. So we're seeing basically it's calcium rushing ability. The way that we're able to visualize that is with this really, and this, this is another magic thing that I'm not entirely sure how it works, <laughs> but we load up the cells with this, uh, indicator that when there's calcium inside the cell call it magic blows, powder magic powder the magic powder no it, it seriously basically is like it, it when there's calcium the cells glow it really looks like magic you know wow. you put it in you're imaging it and they just start to twinkle and it's 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 quite beautiful to look at actually you know when i first learned in undergrad of like microbio molecular bio it sounded dreadfully boring but the way you describe it sounds so amazing they need to teach this they need to talk about this and undergrad mm. the, see the thing is i think if you want to be a good biochemist you need to enjoy dungeons and dragons <laughs> that's the key that's I've, I have said said, that. I've said that for years <laughs> yes because you need to be able to get excited over like a dice roll you know you're like 20 yeah because i think yeah. part of the problem yeah. with how they teach it is they uh um, they divorce it too much from the experiments, right? These, these sort of mm -hmm. crazy radioactive stuff, you know, this magical component to it. And instead, they just show you diagrams of lists and lists and Ooh, diagrams and diagrams and lists. Yeah. All these clouds, pink cloud interacts with gray cloud, you know, and... <laughs> Although those are great wizard battles. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> pink cloud versus gray cloud. I thought pink cloud would win. No, gray cloud has the staff of calcium. <laughs> It's, it's true though. Like it's, uh, it's funny. So I teach college biology and we have like one class the whole semester where we talk about the people behind the science and it comes together this beautiful story where we talk about the experiments and like how they resulted in these conclusions and where they were wrong, which you also never talk about mm -hmm. in school, you know, and it's, it's my favorite class to teach because you really see how science 
happens versus just these disembodied figures that came out of somewhere <laughs> yeah no absolutely i think it's a it's really a big weakness in the way science is taught right because it's part of the reason i think that there's so much confusion about a lot of the covid information mm -hmm. going out because you know people they know what a virus is right they know what sickness and all of these things are but they're often being just straight told right masks are bad listen to your doctors don't do it wait no now they're good you know uh, of course people are going to get confused right mm -hmm. yeah people don't get used to how science is fluid too that weird no people <laughs> have this amazing idea that science is either this or this rather than especially on the cutting edge where there's so much uncertainty instead of like this is this is, it is a and b and c and that is it was like, because well, it's how D. it's taught mm -hmm. and it is yeah it's presented as if you've only ever done science up until like say high school which probably is the experience of the majority of the of the general population then it becomes yeah like it's presented as this has been established um and then everything new and the further you go uh, through academia the more you realize oh we really there's so much we don't know Mm -hmm. um, and then now that we have to deal with something unknown, it's like, oh, the science is being done right now. I and mean, we probably won't establish, you know, as much uh, certainty about things for years to come. And so many of the things that we are already operating on, like the drugs we use in hospitals and whatnot, not there. There is no certainty about no. a lot yeah. of those. Right. Hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> So Kevin, how did you get into this whole field in the first place? Like how, what were you ever, like you, you've mentioned uh, other interests. Um, so what led you down this path? Mm -hmm. I, I like to think of it as a sort of butterfly effect chain uh -huh. where essentially I, I had applied for, I didn't actually directly apply for uh, culinary school at the time, but I had applied for film school and uh, wow. uh, biochemistry actually over in, in the natural Yale. pairing. <laughs> yes. And essentially my parents uh, being uh, the good Asian parents that they are were like, no, don't do filmmaking. And I was like, no, but I like it. You know, it's something that maybe I should try. They said, listen, it's probably easier to become a filmmaker than a scientist, which is untrue you know <laughs> but it's i bought it at the time and they were just like why don't you try for that first and if you don't like it you know you can make a u-turn i was like okay okay i'll try it you know i i ended up going into my first year of biochemistry and as is the experience of so many people in first year biochem absolutely hated it because right. <laughs> hated the clouds and all of those things and um was was really discouraged by my first year of university actually yeah. but then yeah it's tough yeah and uh i i i actually originally come uh right before i came to university i was living in this like tropical part of china too so lots of sun and all of a sudden you know biochem mm. and sunsets at 4 30 and it was just it was really rough <laughs> uh but then i i started dating a girl who was in med school at the time and I was just like, nah, I got to continue, got to maybe try for medical school. And that was that was my motivation until she dumped me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you weren't enthusiastic enough uh, about the cloud. I, I guess not. I guess not. It's but, uh, <laughs> but, sorry to bring but that up, Kevin. Are yeah. you okay? <laughs> I, I'm okay now, but yeah, <laughs> I was definitely because because for me it wasn't just the breakup. It was 
Um, I made the rather foolhardy decision of basing some of my career path choices on it, right? You would not be the first or the last. Yes, and I um, I basically told one of the um, professors that I had a class with at the time, you know, like he was just really, really nice guy. His name's uh, Alvin Schreier. He's over at uh, McGill. And he, he actually, actually, I was doing this little mentorship thing with him and he approached me. He was like, oh, you look kind of down, you know, and I was like, yeah, I uh, just got dumped. I don't really know what to do. He was like, oh, that sucks, man. But I mean... If you want to like do something like a master's, we have openings in our lab. Whoa. Yeah, and, and that that was it, right? And that's another thing that if um if anybody's looking into doing grad school, go talk to the profs. You know, talk to them, right. get to get to know them, not just their research. Also get dumped. Sounds like just heartbreak. Uh, honestly, heartbreak <laughs> is is one of the most uh informative and uh, growing experiences that I've ever had. Of course I mean. it is, yeah. yeah. That is the wildest pitch for grad school I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. sad? You think this feels bad? Why would you do a master's? <laughs> 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 Real pain. No, yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't pain enough for me, right? Because I, I went <laughs> right. ahead and went to go get a phd so (laughs) so so what do you remember the moment where you went from hating it you stuck with it for med school girl but like when did you fall because you're clearly very enthusiastic about it or you're a great actor or you're both kevin when did you fall in love with biomolecules (laughs) (laughs) actually during my master's because um and this is kind of a bit of a not every single lab that you go to will kind of be suitable for where you are um at the time that you join it, right? It's something that we sort of touched on beforehand. I really felt like um, uh, Dr. Schreier's lab was really what I needed at the mm. time because he was uh, he was an older tenured professor. So he was more laid back, but it just gave me so much space to explore. You know, he had even kind of put me in charge of ordering things for the lab, which I don't mm. know was a good idea or not. I could even buy <laughs> lots of pizzas. Uh, <laughs> oh, it goes beyond that. I would buy like, you know, these $500 tubes of antibodies and be like, whoops, I misread the label. This is actually for the wrong protein, you know, but uh, goodness. Yeah. But he was so nice about it all. And I think he gave me so much space too, because I feel like when you're an undergrad and you're basically you know, your grades are being judged by whether or not, you know, gray cloud or whatever. And, and you transition into a space where you're playing with gray cloud, you know, let's throw gray mm. cloud into a tube and see what happens. Right. <laughs> Maybe it does. And, um, aside, outside of that also, I think in undergrad, yeah, you have friends, but a lot of times your friends aren't there to kind of like directly help you in what you're doing. And in that lab setting, the sort of camaraderie of like trying to sort of figure out these problems together and whatnot was really really good and it's put me in a place where I realized that this was something that I could have a passion for and something that I was willing to put my weight behind Mm -hmm. and that's why for my PhD then you know I wanted to choose a lab where I knew the supervisor was probably going to push me a little you know and I knew that they were really wanting to get things done and really wanting to sort of like hold us to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. I think that if I had joined a joined a lab like that, coming out of my breakup, I would have left just hating science, yeah. being like, this yeah. is terrible. But because sort of both both of these um, labs came into my life at the appropriate time, I think it, it, it sort of helped foster this. Uh, yeah, so Kevin, tell me a little bit more just about like, 
you know what what were you like as a kid like were you were you always curious were you always did you like i'm gonna be a scientist or were you like i'm gonna go to culinary school and make movies about food (laughs) definitely a bit of both i um so a high school teacher of mine uh i think he was quoting some british philosopher when he said this but he said (laughs) there are two different types of people there are hedgehogs and there are foxes you know some people who are hedgehogs they dig one hole they become really good at that hole really invested other people they're like fox they like to dig a little here and dig a little there you know and i i was definitely kind of the fox type i um science was naturally appealing to me just because uh it there was so much about so many different things you know you could watch a documentary about uh, nature one day and then physics the other. Uh, my parents also really encouraged these sorts of things. My mom would buy us like these illustrated encyclopedias with mm. these beautiful images. And uh, she often, she loved watching documentaries and stuff like that at night. So we would see all of these things, right? And I think that was really, really important for um, uh, just making science accessible to me, first of all, but also um allowing this interest to to grow when i was younger and um i think another really important thing that kind of came to um shape uh my relationship with science is because i had so much contact with science outside of school i was able to kind of see it as something that was apart from my personal achievement. So even if I was bad at physics, so I'm not very good at math, you know, I'm not good at physics. I still love physics, you know, it's like really, really fascinating to me. As you should. (laughs) Yes. So you mentioned you thought of being a chef. Is there like a number one Kevin recipe? What's your number one thing to cook? Oh, that's a really good question. I... Oh, what are some of your go-tos? No, one. Choose Just one. one. Yeah. Just one. Hey. Well, I am rather recently proud because it was something I mastered over the pandemic mm. is um, these Hokkaido milk buns that I finally uh, figured out how to perfect. They require so much kneading. I don't have like a oh. standing mixer, oh so gosh. I do that all by hand. It takes... Ooh six hours to make you know and there's just so much love inside them <laughs> that when you eat them you know you you really you really feel well, all the can you tell me what's inside, inside one i'm dying to know <laughs> so the main things are really just like milk uh eggs butter flour yeast you know it, it's kind of that normal bread composition uh with a little bit more fats i suppose and milk uh but the what really makes it special is that it incorporates an ingredient called tanjong which essentially is almost like a rice flour pudding that you make first or it's not rice flour it's just normal flour pudding that you make over the stove or you can make it in a microwave but it becomes this gloopy mixture that you incorporate into the dough and it makes it kind of like hold on to its moisture and gives it that like beautiful glutinous like elastic texture yeah whoa how do they survive in the post and will you be sending us a couple (laughs) (laughs) but of course that's amazing wow Wow. very cool well i think you should go back to culinary school kevin i want to go to your milk bun restaurant well tell you what it's working in a biochemistry lab is a lot like uh, working in a restaurant in many many ways yeah yeah plus all, all that milk has so much calcium Vitamin for our vitamin, vitamin K. K. Vitamin K. Brought it together. 
<laughs> so what's next for Kevin? So you're doing your PhD. We won't ask when you're when you're going to finish. Everyone hates That's that question. question. But do you, do you have aspirations or are you just enjoying the moment? Uh, so when I told my parents that I was going to do a PhD, <laughs> they were actually pretty upset about it. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Whoa, hold on. Whoa. <laughs> They're like, where's my film switched. I guess my it was mostly my dad that was more upset about it because he was hoping that I would go into business or finance oh. or something like that, you know? And it, it's funny because um when you sort of asked about if I was wanting if I grew up wanting to be a scientist, um it is true. Part of me did want to grow up to be become a scientist, but part of me didn't really also because my dad was a professor for a couple of years. Oh, and that's yeah. going to sound kind of bad, no, but it was true no. because I saw him kind of like come home so late all the time, you know, stressing out about grants and whatnot. And yeah. um, that that was probably the primary thing that pushed me away from that. But um, and now he's left science. He's doing business in China right now and doing pretty well for himself. So I think he really sort of wanted um, both my sister and I actually to to follow Morris a path like that. So actually, just last week I I had gotten a scholarship for three more years, the NSERC scholarship. Ooh, <laughs> congrats. congrats! Thank you. Kevin. But but uh, when I told my dad about it, he called me all <laughs> concerned. Like, Kevin, does does this mean that you're going to stay in academia? You know, does this mean that you oh. know uh, business is still a viable option for you. And I was like, relax, dad, it's just a scholarship. <laughs> I didn't get like a tenure track position. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, honestly, I think things are things are pretty difficult right now. And it, it at risk of sounding a little bit political, like my family is all in China. Oh, yeah. And the last year or so has been a bit worrying about the relationship mm. between the two sides. And mm-hmm. uh, I would hate to kind of be be stuck here in a sense i would also hate to be stuck over there to be honest yeah. because i wow. i do really love canada as well and uh be, because before all of this one of my biggest aspirations was to kind of be able to run back and forth you know maybe mm-hmm. uh be a professor or even work in sort of a, a biotech company mm-hmm. you know as sort of like a research science uh, or a a sort of r d scientist and um, be able to sort of communicate with companies or universities in uh, both mm-hmm. countries, right? And I, I, I really, really hope that, you know, cooler heads will prevail and that sort yeah. of uh, world will be possible. But um, we, we got to hope. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, Kevin, you are clearly such a star. Yeah, it's a real delight talking to you. Yeah, I'm real delight you. talking to you guys too. You you are such a great science communicator too. So I think I I hope you get to share your passion with young scientists because that's how we're going to keep yeah. them keep them on our side. We need more yes. more vitamin based role playing games. I think that's what I've <laughs> that's a great idea. That yeah. would be great. A really exciting tabletop yeah. game yeah. about vitamins. Which class of vitamin do you want to be? Ooh, bees, bees. Yes. Oh, have you see. heard of the um the uh anime cells at work? Yes, I have heard of that one. It's <laughs> yes. a great one. I need to get into and I didn't know that's where this meeting was gonna go, but yeah. clearly I need we'll to get watch, into we'll anime. We'll watch some cells at work and you'll get into it. I didn't it. know there was so much science based anime. Uh, that's how you sell it me on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh Kevin, it was such a delight to get to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining Pleasure's us. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you for that's having me. Thank you, Kevin. That was Kevin Guo from Matthew Ferrand's lab. I learned so much about vitamins today. 
That was super cool. See, like when I was an undergrad, I avoided like after my intro bio class, I was like cells, boo, plants, boo, animals are where it's at. And that was all because my one unit of intro bio on ecology had an awesome professor who sadly Mm -hmm. died actually during final exams of my last year of undergrad. It was really tragic. Yeah. He died really tragically. Anyway, um, but that one professor changed the course of my life. Like I was excited about a topic I'd never really been interested in. And it's crazy how something so small, right? The presentation of this information has such a power over the course of your life. You never know what's going to capture the imagination of somebody and then get them fired up about it. And that's, I think that's a universal. I think that's true probably in any field, but you never know what alley you're going to wander down in science Mm. and be like, oh, this is interesting and then just dedicate the rest of your life to following it it feels like there's too much of a premium paid on facts instead of how we get them yeah That's yeah the fun it's not stuff. just about <laughs> delivering the facts but how you present them that i think really can make a difference but also like how you figure out information like how do you do science what is an experiment all those sorts of things that's yeah. so exciting yeah yeah it's not just yeah how science is actually done on the ground and talking to all these amazing uh people i hope is illuminating yeah very cool very cool stuff well Vinny, this has been a blast i've had a great time i've learned i've learned plenty about bats yes about planets yeah and And, vitamin k and why moons aren't planets yeah correct (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah vitamin k and wizards and wizards i mean you can always start to learn more about wizards yeah we'll look up well maybe we'll take a vacation to the islets of langerhans one time face off against gray cloud the wizard (laughs) Pink Cloud's going to win no, in the reboot. my money's on Grey oh, Cloud, don't you're you? you're going down. All right. Thank you for joining us for Learn Real Good. Thanks again to Kevin. I'm Katie saying goodbye. And I'm Vinny saying goodbye. Thanks for joining us.